too. And we're live on the Virtual Real Estate Investing Podcast. It's my favorite time of the week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. I, uh, I got this crazy heat in New York right now. Well, you're here too. It's like 80 degrees and humid. It's almost October. I'm sweating, but I'm doing good. How about you? Yes. It's good, man. It's football season. And I don't watch nearly as much football as I used to, but I've gone to the Army football games the last two Saturdays. And it felt so amazing to go to a college football game in person. I don't think you've been to one yet, but I'm telling you, man, it feels good. Yeah, Army got the W too. Big win against uh, UConn. UConn is like the worst one <laughs> A team in the history of sports right now. Sorry, UConn fans. Anyway, yeah. I uh, so let's jump into it. I you usually ask me the first question, but we're going to flip it today. Um, I wanted to ask you a question. So we have been working on self-storage facilities. We're closing on one next week, our first one. It's in Lawton, Oklahoma. We're super excited about it. You've been kind of running with the acquisition arm of uh, that new business endeavor for us. And I wanted to just ask you over the last two months running acquisitions, what have you learned? Yeah. So I, I avoided commercial real estate for the last maybe three years because everything was so priced, right? Or priced so high. Three years ago or so, I was like, I want to get into commercial real estate. I'm going to learn how to value properties. And I spent a long time taking some courses and trying to learn how to value properties. And then I started looking at properties. And what I realized is they were all overpriced. So I just said, screw it. I'm not going after commercial. I'm going to stick in single family. Well, now we're getting back into commercial. And guess what? Everything is still way too expensive, right? But then what I'm learning is you can't just quit and say it's too expensive because people are buying deals and they're making money and you know they're they're making good investments. So what is what does that mean? That means like it is really difficult to find deals. It's not like you go out there and you can't find stuff for sale. You can find stuff for sale and you can find stuff that have you know huge opportunities, but it's all often priced so high that you got to be like, how can I pay something close to this price and still make it a good investment for us. And, and that's the challenge. So in your opinion, why are things priced so high at this point in time? Um, interest rates are low, right? When interest rates are low, that means capital is, is cheap. So people can get cheap loans, right? I think uh, stock market has done really well. So a lot of people have additional money that they can invest in stuff, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, people are looking to maybe diversify and put some of that money that they've uh, uh, gotten gotten from the stock market, put it back into real estate. So that's compressing prices. I also think there's a lot of foreign money, right? Uh, we talk, we've got a good friend who's a multifamily broker in Dallas, Fort Worth. And I remember him telling, telling me that the majority of his buyers are uh, foreign buyers, right? And they're, they're really just trying to place money in the United States in dollars, and they're not that concerned uh, about cap rates. So it's a lot of macroeconomic stuff. But the bottom line is when the economy is doing, doing really well and, and money is cheap, uh, cap rates are going to compress. And, and they've done that, right? But the, the problem is, is they've been compressing for 10 years. So nine years ago, 10 years ago, people were saying the same thing. Like, I'm, I'm just going to sit it out until, until the market, uh, you know, resets, but those people never did any deals. So you got to figure out how to be able to do deals in any market, in my opinion. That is the question. So how do you, how do you change either your acquisition process or maybe the way you structure or operate these deals? How do you change that to fit 
the current environment. Basically, I'm asking, like, how do you pay a higher price and make it work? Yeah, right. So this is this is how I would answer that question. And I probably did on this podcast uh, over the last two months, right? I answered it with like, hey, we're going to go into a place, a storage facility. We're going to go to a storage facility. And we're going to increase prices. Okay. Um, and then we're going to decrease expenses. We're going to increase prices just by looking at uh, what rents are in that area. And most people are undercharging for rents. And then to decrease expenses, oftentimes we're going to try to get, get rid of on-site management, lower our costs overall. And that's how we're going to be able to pay more, right? The problem is even when you pull those levers, it's, prices are still too high, right? So you can't just look at how can you do an operational value add strategy. You, ha- you have to dig deeper. So then where do you dig? Well, what we're trying to look at right now is kind of like Traditionally, what a lot of people do in real estate private equity is they structure deals with an 8% or so preferred return and a 50-50 split of profit after you meet that 8% preferred return, right? So what we're looking at is, can we get rid of the preferred return? And then instead of going 50-50, try to go 70-30, right? Take a smaller cut of it. Why? Because I think the investments we're looking at are still really good investments, but they're going to take longer to get there, right? It's it's going to uh, take us longer to take a self-storage facility and get it operating where it needs to operate. So getting rid of the preferred return and taking less on the back end is going to give us time. And then we also just have to look at the, the financing terms, right? Like when we, um, on our first facility, we were super pumped with any bank that would give us a loan, right? And going forward, we're going to have to, I think, really shop around relationships with different lenders to try to make sure we get super competitive rates. Yeah. Or maybe explore like interest-only payments for the first year or two while you're stabilizing that asset. So you can give your investors um, preferred return or not. It's going to feel like they're getting one, right? If you're able to accomplish that. So like, um, I think a lot of people are doing this. I don't think we're the only ones having this thought. A lot of people are changing the way deals are structured in order to like... uh, grease the skids on their acquisitions uh, process. There's like lock up more deals. We were looking at a, uh, a deal, another GP put together. Um, and I think this is becoming more common too. People are elongating the investment timelines on their offering documents to investors. Like we're seeing things like 10 years or longer, right? For, um, you know, for their capital raising decks. And I'm like, well, yeah, every investment in real estate looks really good after year eight. You know, <laughs> like, like that's almost like saying, I'm paying at market or above market price, but it's going to work out in the end. Don't worry about it, right? So there's a, there's a lot of crazy shit going on um, in terms of like how deals are structured. Yeah, right. Well, if you look at the time horizon, right? Like it's harder to make a deal good in three years than in six years, right? And so on and so forth, okay? So traditionally we'll say it's, you know, most people are saying, hey, it's going to be a five to 10 year hold, you know, probably a seven, seven year, right? But then you also have people that are like, it's a forever hold, right? And I think you could take the people that say it's a forever hold, you could take them and split them right down the middle. Half of them are idiots and half of them are geniuses, right? Like there's <laughs> there's no in between, right? Uh, if you're going to hold an asset forever, um, you could be an idiot because you're like, hey, if I hold it forever, I'm never truly accountable for my purchase price here and it's just going to work out. You could be a genius because you're looking at it like uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and you're like, hey, winners win. I'm going to get the best asset I can. I'm going to hold on to it, right? Um, it's tough though, right? Like, And it's also, I'm kind of all over the place because I've been so passionate about this this lately, but it's also 
a big question is why are you making this investment and what do your limited partners want, right? One of the things we talk about is our peers, the people that want to invest with us, like we, we flip houses. So we get a lot of people that have that same mentality, right? It's like, hey, we want to get in, we want to get out, we want to make good money, we want to make it happen, right? But what does this environment attract more of? It, it track, attracts more wealth preservation, right? People that want to take a million dollars and put it in a good location in self-storage and they hope they get a return. But what they really want is they want to know that they can sleep well at night and that million dollars isn't going to, isn't going to get smaller. Right. So, so that's something we have to think through as well. Yeah. I think that, that maybe is the limiting belief we both had when we were like kind of shunning commercial real estate. We looked at every investment deck through our own lens. Like what return do I want? Right. And we're flippers. Like you said, you're like, I want my annual return of my money to be a hundred percent. You know, that that's the flipper mentality. And uh, that's just not how other people look at it. So we like constantly have to remind ourselves, like we look at deals and we're like, this deal sucks. And we're like, well, to the right person, the risk adjusted return here is actually really, really good. You know? So I think that's always a challenge too, for a single family guy or gal making the switch over to multifamily. It's a definitely, or self-storage, different mindset. And one thing I'd point out too is, uh, you know, we've thrown a lot of shade uh, at the uh, the flipper and wholesaler courses, the gurus, right? Like there's some terrible people in the real estate education space. And what I think we're learning is there's some terrible people in the real estate private equity space as well. What do I mean by that? We have seen deals, multifamily deals, self-storage deals that are so confusing to understand, even though we're, we're doing this every day, are so confusing to understand. And they don't really lay out what their business plan is. And they're, they're raising a ton of money and they're going to do a ton of development, yet they have no development experience. They don't actually say what their true cap rate is going in. They, they, we looked at one today that's charging a 10% acquisitions fee. Like this is, this is someone that uh, is, is doing deals. And this person is, is charging a 10% acquisition fee on the front end. Um, so I just tell people out there, like, be careful. Um, they always say, you know, like 99% of your due diligence is on the person and 1% is on the deal. I don't know what the correct breakup of that is, but make sure whoever you invest with, you trust and they know what they're doing. Cause there's a lot of people that are really good salesmen or saleswomen, but they don't know what the hell they're doing. And to be honest, we like, we're not experts, but I think we have a good feel for what we know and don't know when we try really hard to close that gap or to pay consultants for advice too. For sure. I think, um, I think the, your acquisition fees should be commensurate or like have some correlation with the forced equity or value being added in the project. Right. In the same deal we're talking about the IRR through like year eight was like less than 11%. Right. I'm like, so you're getting a 4% acquisition fee on a monster portfolio for that much IRR, right? That's kind of, that's not equal to me because right, 11% is like, that's what the stock market's done the last four years on average, actually less than that. So kind of nuts. The other thing, so like red flags, like what red flags would I look for, right? Unnecessarily elongated timelines, right? Like I think long timelines are a way to protect yourself. For some people, like Nick, for example, I think that's, that his product and his strategy is to hold long-term. Like that's a real strategy and he's having success, right? He does refinances, all that stuff. But some people are using timelines, in my opinion, to uh, to just make bad deals good. And I think uh, the other red flag, in my opinion, is like fees not being commensurate with 
with investor returns. Like there's a relationship there that you have to balance. And um, if someone has imbalance there and they look like a marketing machine, like they got a lot, a lot of marketing going into their offerings, like that, that would scare me a little bit because that's where the focus is. Yeah. I, I like another red flag that it's not perfect to understand, but if someone's presenting a deal that's very complicated, they better be really, really good. <laughs> you know, like if it's a portfolio that's got five locations and, you know, three different businesses, and somehow they're going to do development on top of that, like this person better be top 1% of, of business owners out there, right? Uh, the idea that your average real estate investor can buy a laundromat, uh, a car wash, and two apartment complexes and put them in one deal and then develop another car wash on the side. And like that, it would be so difficult to do. And the, so many of these people are like, yeah. And then there's, you know, uh, uh, a laundromat on the back that I think we can start making a hundred grand a year from You're like, whoa, man, whoa, well, what's like, going on? Like that's the equivalent of like um, invitation homes doing like build to rent in California, for example, that's like the original um, REIT, single family REIT. They go to California they build hundreds of houses, right? Like they're, the people that are doing that are hired full-time to focus on those projects when they first start out. So then the question I have to the GP is like, are you hiring full-time employees to do this? Like how many people are you staffing this with, right? That's where I'm assuming this acquisition fee is going. That's the only way I could justify a 10% acquisition fee is if you're telling me you're hiring like four people to directly manage this incredibly complex operation. If you're offshoring the call center operations to you know outside country and not hiring any U.S. personnel for that big of a job, like that shit ain't gonna work. Period. It's not happening. You know. So that's those are questions I would ask if I was an investor. For sure. So I think we may sound like whiners, and I got it. We are. Like I I am whining because I want to find a deal so bad, and I'm looking at them every day, and I'm getting so pissy because I can't find any. Yeah. Um, but you know, we will, right? Like we're, we're really close on a couple uh, right now that, that I think we can uh, bring home, but let's, let's go to the second part of our podcast. You've got a business idea that I don't think we're necessarily going to do today, but I, I think it's pretty interesting and it is something that someone could do. Yeah. So I didn't invent this, this business plan. It's, it's a take on something that already exists. So I'll give you my pitch, right? So we're, we're both army officers or I used to be an army officer. You're getting out of the army now. We're familiar with military bases, how they operate. I, uh, I was thinking about my vacation in Hilton Head, South Carolina, right? I'm looking at Airbnbs and I'm looking at all the rentals. And I noticed, I'm, I'm taking in a couple of months. I noticed that the same private equity firm that owns the hotel and all the other nice stuff in Hilton Head also owns all the single family houses on the island that you can do vacation rentals on, right? So they've cornered the market. They jacked the rates up. They have total control over that. I don't know how they did it, but they accomplished it. I don't know how they did it. Anyway, so I started thinking about like military bases and I'm like, man, military bases are such awesome rental markets, right? Like two thirds of the housing is single family rentals. Um, the short-term rental market there is like a hidden gem. People that are familiar with those markets in the Airbnb market there, they make a ton of money. The houses are cheap, but the demand is super, super high. So I was like, oh shit, what if you had the private equity model in a military housing community? right? You had a portion of the portfolio being single family rentals, long-term rentals. And then maybe the houses that are like 150 to 300K, the nicer housing outside of a military base, that's generally what they're priced at. Those are short-term rentals, right? How would you do that? I'm like, yo, every military base also has 
one to two property managers that have 80% of the market. It's like without fail, like every single one has one gigantic property management firm. So my idea was to bring this all together, buy that property management company and the brokerage that goes with it, slowly acquire all the housing that you can, right? Now think about this, you're guaranteed none of those are short-term rentals, right? So you're only getting long-term rental cash flow or yield, right? Then rehab the houses as needed, right? Buy out the houses from the existing owners and split the portfolio to whatever makes sense. Maybe it's 66% long-term rental, 33% short-term rental. But to me, I'm like, yo, that's going to get you more yield or cash flow than build to rent, right? You don't have to go through the development costs. You have all this existing supply, super huge demand, BAH or housing allowances from the military, jacking up the rates, and you can get the STR market, short-term rental market. So what are your thoughts? Tell me my idea sucks. No, I think it's a good idea, but I want you to rehash it a little bit because we, you're talking with so much passion that uh, I want to make sure everyone understands what you're saying. Okay. So it's really difficult to buy a bunch of rentals at once, right? So that's where going to a property management company would come in, right? Right. Well, yeah. So, go ahead. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's really difficult to go buy 40 single family houses with direct-to-seller marketing. It's very, very difficult to do that. But I think you could set an expectation where this project plan might take three to five years. And you're saying, I'm going to acquire 10 to 15 houses year one, right? 20 to 30 houses year two, by offering retailer close to retail price to all of the homeowners currently being served by that property management company, right? You don't have to pay for data. You already have all their contact information. You already manage the property and are taking a cut of the fees. So I think it's if you're coming in with cash and you had all that money behind you, it would make the acquisitions process, I think, a little cheaper and I think a little bit easier than if you tried to contact every single person in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I like that, right? So there's the acquisitions play. Um, there's also the management play, right? Like if, if, if you could buy a property management company that already manages all those assets as long-term management, then you'd have... The management team right there. And ideally you could go to short term as well, right? Yeah. You could and, and eventually you could also serve people that are not your clients or not, it's not your housing. You could still service the client that owns their house and they want to rent it out and charge them eight percent as a property management company. Conversely, on the short-term rental side, the property management fees on the short-term rental market are anywhere between 20 and 30 percent, sometimes more, right? That's a really, really big uh, revenue stream. If a single-family house is generating three to four thousand dollars a month, right? You're making over a grand just for coordinating cleaning, keeping the books clean, keeping the house clean, all that stuff. No, that's right. So it's one of these things where if you're a sole operator trying to make it in real estate, you buy a house a year, like you can do it, right? Like you can absolutely do it. It's a great way to invest. But then what Frank and I also often talk about is like. That's how you achieve long-term wealth. But how can you get short-term money in real estate too? That that can be trickier, right? You need right. scale generally, right? You need you need scale to be able to do that. So let's let's take an example. Let's say you could get a house for a hundred thousand dollars, right? That means for a million bucks, you could get 10 houses. That means if you if you created a fund that was a five million dollar fund, you could potentially buy 50 houses, right? And let's say you could buy a property management company you know, for, for a hundred thousand dollars on top of that, that was at least break even. And then 
gave you access to all that, right? That's, I actually think that would be easier than what we're doing right now. <laughs> That's really kind of what I thought. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're placing a bigger bet, right? Like that yeah. is, um, you wouldn't be the first person ever to do something like this, but there's not that many examples I can point to and say, yeah, that worked. Whereas flipping houses, I can point to millions of examples where it's worked, right? So it's not as proven, but I don't think it's that dissimilar from what that private equity firm does at Hilton Head when they bought all those housing, whatever that was. Or if you did build to rent, you're still buying land, right? Spending money on fixing it up, aka development, and renting it out, right? It's just you're still acquiring, doing some work on the house and renting it out. Like that, that part of the business model is not changing, right? So yeah. No, I I actually think that'd be that's a great business model to to start that fund, buy 50 houses. Uh, it'd be a good investment just to keep them as um, as long-term rentals. But then if you could turn a percentage of them into short-term rentals, and then you also kept, you kept trying to grow the property management business and you kept trying to grow the assets under management. I, I think that's awesome, man. I, I mean, think about You this. could definitely do it. So in a, a market like Lawton, Oklahoma, which is what actually I was thinking about with this idea, your your blended your cap rate across that entire portfolio of like let's say it's a hundred houses, I'm confident would exceed nine or ten. If you did this stabilized, right? Not not day one, but stabilized. I, I'm very confident it would be nine or ten. And if the STR market stays hot, I think it could be like twelve. So imagine how much equity you would have in like a 100 to 200 house portfolio operating at a 12 cap. It's going to be a lot more equity than when you bought those houses, even if you even if you paid retail. For sure, right? Like that's why cap rates exist is so you can compare assets. So yeah. if you have an asset that's that's a 12 cap that you can stabilize and you're not outsourcing management, so you have control of the management. Um, yeah, let's let's do it. That'll that's what we'll do in our next life after we. Uh, you know, oh, take care man. of all of our storage. <laughs> it's fun to think about, but yeah, you're right. It's not going to happen this year anyway. For sure. But uh, okay. Um, give us one piece of advice and uh, then take us out, Frank. One piece of advice. I think uh, let's, let's stay on point with acquisitions. I think, um, I think one thing that people struggle with is just making offers, make offers, right? So do the work, but is it letter of intent, verbal, whatever. But if you're going to try to do 10 houses a year, that probably looks like a hundred plus offers. So I would just always tell people like keep striking until the iron's hot and uh, that's it. And I would say the only way you're going to be able to put up with 90 rejections in a year is if you get eight hours of sleep every night. So make sure you go to bed on time and make sure you get good sleep and take care of your mental health uh, so you can put up with all that. But uh, that's all I got. Uh, great quick podcast today. Thanks, Frank. All right, brother. Thanks.